Good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. Just over a month ago, my sons had their final basketball game of the season. For my oldest, Kip, it was his final high school basketball game. Ugh, time has just gone by so fast. And it was a tournament game, and they withdrew. They drew a very tough opponent. And a few days before the game, the coaches gave out a packet to all the players. And in this packet was the game plan to use against the team that they'd be facing. Now, the game plan included like these detailed instructions, like information on each player, how to defend them, how to, how to prepare for them offensively, and, and much more. There were plays in this game plan. And you know, through the game plan, the coaches were essentially saying, hey, team, if we're going to have a shot here to win this game, we've got to implement these, these things in our game plan. And it got me thinking about this idea of a game plan, because most teams like use one right against their opponent, and most of us have some type of game plan at any given time in our lives, right? We have a game plan for our retirements, for our health, for our finances, for our kids' education, for their development. Some of us have a game plan for our career. You know, there's a whole industry out there of life coaches whose job is to help people come up with a game plan. We invest in a plan so that we can have success, so that we can succeed. So here's a very important question for us today. Are we investing in a game plan against who is our greatest enemy? Are we preparing for the next attack that will come from the one that the Bible describes as one who goes around like a roaring lion, just waiting for someone to devour. We face a very real opponent. Are we ready for him? Now, we've been in a series here on temptation, and over the past five weeks, we've, we've talked about the reality of temptation, the pattern of temptation. We've talked about how it comes to us. We've looked at biblical examples, both good and bad, regarding temptation. And as we arrive at the end of the series, we're going to ask a couple questions. First, what is our game plan for temptation when it comes? Because up to now, we have been using one. And second, is that game plan sound? Does it lead to victory? Or maybe a question a lot of us are asking is, can I even have victory when it comes to temptation? So today, what we're going to do is we're going to build a game plan. And we're going to do it by first scouting out our enemy, by watching how the devil fights. We're going to see him in an encounter where he displays his tactics. But this is no usual encounter. This, this encounter took place over 2,000 years ago in the wilderness where the Son of God, Jesus, and the father of lies, Satan, went head to head with everything on the line. And as we look at this encounter in a second, we're going to get a glimpse into the strategies that the enemy uses. It's going to help us to know what to expect from him. But, but even more than looking into his playbook, we're going to get to see the playbook of Jesus and how he handles the enemy. We're going to see his game plan, how he deals with this. So we have in front of us here the, the ultimate game plan that we can, can, can learn from. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew's first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 1, and I'm just going to, I'm going to read through the entire encounter. It's, not, it's about 10, 11 verses. 
So I'll start here, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now this this is just a fascinating passage here. There is so much to take in. This, This passage starts with the word then. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit, into the wilderness. When we, when we see that word then in Scripture, it makes us look back. What happened before this temptation? What happened before this, this encounter with Satan? It's in Matthew chapter 3, and it's, it's really important. It's something we need to be aware of because, get this, Jesus' hair was practically still wet as he went into this con- confrontation with Satan. J- Jesus had just recently been baptized by John the Baptist. We read about it in Matthew Chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is what it reads. This describes the end of Jesus' baptism. It says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said this, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You see, before his temptation, Jesus experienced this incredible moment, this, this spiritual high where he's affirmed as God's son. He's, he, he sees the Spirit descending. He hears the voice of the Father. He's told that he's absolutely loved and that the Father just delights in him. And it's important for us to know this about his baptism because the enemy will soon come and tempt him. And part of his strategy will be to question what Jesus heard from the Father. Satan will tempt him to question his his identity, his position, his purpose. Now, before we go on, just a couple things about temptation and this encounter that we've got to know. And we've talked about some of these the last several weeks. But just know these things about temptation. One, Satan's playbook is very predictable when it comes to temptation. Now, he may open up some new streams of temptation, but essentially he's tempting us with the same questions. Did God really say that? Does God really love me? Does that choice really matter to God? And don't don't I have rights as a child of God? And Satan will tempt us through these questions in many of the same ways he tempts Jesus in this encounter. The second thing about temptation, temptation is not about us. This is a big one to understand. Temptation is not about us. 
And Russell D. Moore wrote this book called Tempted and Tried on Temptation, specifically on this encounter. It's an amazing book if you want to read it, Tempted and Tried. But this is what he says about temptation in that book. Temptation is an assault by the demonic powers on the rival empire of the Messiah. That's why becoming a Christian does not diminish the power of temptation, as we often assume, but actually, counterintuitively, it ratchets up the temptation. It's going to help us in the battle if we understand that temptation is not about us. Satan wants to make it about us, to turn us inward, but ultimately, temptation is a play by the enemy against the kingdom of God and its advancement. A third thing about temptation. Temptation is real. We live in the wilderness. We live in a wild place where temptation is happening all the time, whether we know it or not. And at any given time, we're on the edge of giving in to temptation. We won't outgrow being tempted. Don't be surprised if you face the same temptations over and over again. The enemy, he knows how to target us. We can't ever think that we've reached a level of maturity in our lives where we won't be tempted. Even at the end of this encounter that Jesus has, it says in the accountant Luke that the devil left him until an opportune time to come back and to attack again. So know this about the enemy. He'll attack, he'll leave, he'll come back and attack again. So let's go back to this encounter. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the Spirit that leads Jesus to this confrontation. Why? Is God tempting Jesus? Does God tempt us? And the answer is no. But God does test us. And there's a test happening here for Jesus as he's about to enter into the beginning of his ministry. And just real quickly, it's important, it's important to know that there's a difference between tempting and being tested. And the word for tempt in the Greek can also be translated as test. So we have to look at the context to discern what the difference is. Being tempted, which is a play of the devil, is always intended for evil. Satan tempts. Satan does not test. Being tested, as God does, is intended for our transformation but it can result in a positive or negative outcome. And in the Bible, we know that God allowed individuals to be tested, Job, Paul, and others. And often those people who were going through that testing, they didn't understand the implications in the spiritual realm of what was happening while they were being tested. But God knew, and God was for them as they were being tested. And he allows us to be tested too, with the hope the good comes out of it, our, our transformation. So I say all that so we know that the Spirit leads Jesus on this test where God is allowed to be, to be tempted. Jesus is allowed to be tempted by the devil. And in verse 2, it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That might be the understatement of all time. Have you, have you ever experienced true hunger? You know, most of us have that time in the afternoon where we, you know, we're at work and we've worked past lunch and and we're becoming a little more irritable and grumpy, right? And then you eat something, and all of a sudden you're a much nicer person because you forgot to eat lunch. 
That's not true hunger, all right? Now, most of us have been on a fast before, some of us, most of us maybe, and we fast for maybe a specific reason. How does our body respond when we do that? You know, it's interesting timing because about a month ago, the males in my household went on this cleanse, okay? A two-week cleanse. And we had a list of items that we weren't allowed to eat. And it was very funny because the first few days of that cleanse, probably I'd say even the first week, we would all come out in the evening just pathetic, okay? There's no food in this house. There's nothing to eat. I'm so hungry. This stupid cleanse. Why did we start this? I know this. We didn't even stop eating. We just fasted from certain items. That's not true hunger. Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without food. I cannot even fathom the condition that Jesus was in at this point. He had to be in physical jeopardy, his life was. Why this fast? What? Was this part of the, the testing that's going on? Here's a famous depiction of the temptation of Jesus by an artist, Ivan Kromskoy. I hope I didn't hack his name. But you can see, like, especially in his face, the physical condition of Jesus, gaunt and thin. And it was in this condition, just completely depleted, that the enemy comes to Jesus. And just know this about the enemy. If you're in a weakened state, man, he will consider that an invitation to come. Don't be surprised if he comes at your lowest. And in verse 3 of Matthew 4, it says, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil asked Jesus to make bread from stones. Now let's start to open up the devil's playbook here. What's his angle? Is it to get Jesus to bake bread a little quicker? No. Is it to get him to clean up the stones in the wilderness? No. Satan's goal is to divert Jesus away from the test, away from the mission that the Father has for him. And the devil's going to employ a tactic. We, Tom Burns talked about this several weeks ago. He's going to employ a tactic, mixing some truth with a lie. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God. I don't believe the devil's trying to get Jesus to doubt that he's the Son of God or to do a miracle to prove it. He's, he's kind of ratcheting up. He's not reasoning with Jesus the same way he did with Adam and Eve here. He's not saying, did God really say that you're the Son of God? What Satan does communicate is this. Okay, you're the Son of God, but what does that mean, Jesus? Jesus, think about your position. Think about what rights you have as the Son. Jesus, use your position to satisfy your, your needs, your hunger. You're hungry. If you're the Son of God, you have every right to use your power to meet that need. But Jesus, though he's depleted, he's walking with the Spirit, and he's on mission to prepare for the work that God has for him. This test is a part of that mission, and Satan wants Jesus to use his status in a way that's inconsistent with the mission that God has for him. Now, I ask the question again, why, why this fast? Would it have been a big deal for Jesus just to go make 
the bread? What was God trying to get Jesus to do through this? I think we'll see soon enough that with this test, God was asking Jesus the question, am I enough? Am I enough? You know, Jesus had been sent to earth as a man. He was fully God and fully man, and he had come to take on the form of a servant. Not a superhero as some wanted, not, not to use his godly abilities to bend the laws of nature, to serve himself. In fact, if you look through the Gospels, almost every miracle was aimed at bringing glory to the Father or to validate his mission and why he was there. Turning stones into bread would have been a, just a disobedient move on Jesus' part. It would have been a frivolous use of his abilities. He did not come to be served. He came to serve. That's why he says he does not live by bread alone. He lives and we live by being obediently connected to God. So Jesus, though he's absolutely weakened and depleted, he turns down the offer of the enemy. And he responds with this quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Deuteronomy. Now stay with me here because Jesus is going to refer back to the Old Testament here several times, and specifically to Deuteronomy. He's going to refer back to the time in history when the people of Israel were tested in the wilderness. You remember that? This is, this is the backdrop for Jesus. This is what he's thinking about as he's going through these temptations from the enemy. Take a real quick look at the similarities and the differences in the testing of Jesus and the testing of the Israelites. You see, the Israelites, like Jesus, they, they began their test in the wilderness coming off this spiritual high. They were freed from bondage in Egypt. You remember that? They barely escaped. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. Then they were let out in the wilderness to be tested for 40 years. And Jesus refers back to this when he's being tempted in his first temptation. And here's the context of the passage that he quotes to Satan. Remember, Israel, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, God tested Israel's heart during that time in the wilderness. He humbled them. He made changes to their diet. He caused them to hunger and then fed them. Why did he do that? To test what was in their hearts and to see if they would follow. To really ask the question, am I enough? Am I enough? He wanted to teach them not to be, to be controlled by their appetites. He wanted their heart in the right place. More important was, than the food was their walking in obedience with him. They're being connected to him, listening, hearing his voice, obeying his word. It's what God wanted from Israel, and it's what he wants from us. He wants our hearts. Get this. He wants us. He wants us to feed on him. He wants us to feed on him. 
Now that was part of Israel's testing. Now we fast forward to Jesus. Why the fast? To know. To know what was in his heart. To know that God the Father was enough. And after 40 days, Jesus is tempted to use his position to take this shortcut. To have instant gratification. Instant gratification. Satan has turned our world now, right, into an instant gratification place. We are impatient. We will have things now. We will have our appetites met. And our connection with Christ, our mission for him is always at risk of being severed so that we can feast on these appetites that are offered. For anything from TV to food to sports to sex to vacations, you name it, Satan will use anything to get us to feed primarily on those appetites instead of God. And Scott Dunn talked about this several weeks ago when he talked about the sensual side, temptations that we face there. So we've got to ask some questions regularly. We've got to step back and say, does the enemy have us right now? Do we need to step back? Do we need to take a fast and get recentered? Now, Jesus passed this first test. His heart was set on the will of the Father. And he would later say in John 4 that my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to do his work, to finish his work. That's what God desires from us. Let's go on to, to verse 5 of chapter 4. And then the devil took Jesus to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So let's look, let's look at another page here in the enemy's playbook. Satan will use Scripture. He's not afraid to use it. He's not afraid to twist it to accomplish his purposes. And he's deceitful. And in the second temptation, he quotes Psalm 91. Now, Psalm 91, we're not going to look at it extensively here, but you can look at it on your own. Psalm 91 describes a promise of protection for those who follow God. And Satan is, is crafty here. Because let's go back. We talked about Jesus' baptism early, earlier. And at that point, remember that? The Father communicated his love and his pleasure in the Son. And I think Satan sees an opportunity here. Can I, can I get Jesus? Can I convince him in his depleted state that maybe, maybe God's not going to be there for him? Maybe, maybe the love of the Father is limited here. Maybe he hasn't provided for 40 days. Maybe he won't take care of you. Jesus, God's promised he loves you, right? Then if he does, just jump from here. He's going to save you. Now, now, we should all be able to relate to this in our lives because we've been tempted by Satan to doubt God, to doubt that he'll be there for us. We've, we've said those things like, God, if you love me, you will come through for me. You will give me the thing that I want. God, I took that step of faith. Where are you in this? Don't you love me? Make this right, God. Prove it to me. Give me that job. Take away that sickness. I chose to follow you. I, why? 
this was the test, okay, for me, and has been, because as many of you know, after we had our first two boys, Kip and Kai, we, we had three miscarriages after that, and then we had a failed adoption not long after that. And during that season, so we're going through that, which was just a traumatic time for us, this testing came up after every, every failure that seemed to happen that we perceived as a failure. God, surely, surely after this happened, you're going to redeem this. Surely it's going to be made right. And it wasn't. And Satan's crafty, okay? Satan is crafty in this. And he's trying to get us to question whether God loves us. Do this to see if God's going to come through for you. But Jesus, though he's tired and he's hungry, he's depleted, he's not forgotten the love of God, and he's not forgotten God's protection and promises. His identity is rooted in the Father. And he also knows that Scripture forbids God to test God. So he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, and he refuses Satan. And the relationship Jesus will ask from his disciples, and ultimately us, is the same as the relationship he has with the Father. God's care for us doesn't need to be proved. It's based on loving trust. It's based on faith. It's based on believing he is who he said he is. Now, we're a couple temptations in here. I want to ask you a question. The question is this. Do you feel any connection with Jesus as he goes through these temptations? Do you believe and do you know that he understands what you're experiencing when you're tempted? Because just like us, he was tempted to give up on following the Father. He was tempted to trade it all in for something cheaper, to take this shortcut. And Hebrews 4 talks about his time here. This is what it says. For we do not have a high priest, this is referring to Jesus, we do not have a Jesus who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted, man, in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, fully God, fully man. As a man, he felt the isolation, the, the hunger, the weakness, the dis- temptation just to give in. He knows. He knows when we're going through stuff. Let's go on to the third of these temptations. It's in Matthew 4, 8. It says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you'll bow down and you'll worship me. And at this point, Jesus says to him, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This time, Satan reaches into his bag of tricks and he shows Jesus the temporal. Live here in the moment. Live right now. You can have all this now. You can be king. You can rule now. You don't have to wait. Just bow down and worship me. And one of Satan's most effective tactics is to get us to think in the short term, that we can have this all now. It does not play to his advantage to show us the long-term consequences of the decision that we're going to make. I mean, we've said this before. Affairs don't start because people think about the end and where it's going to go. 
Unhealthy appetites, addictions don't start because people think about where it's going to end up. If Satan can get us to think in the here and now, we are, we're in big trouble. James 1.14 says, each person, each person is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. That moment, you can have it all now. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, it gives birth to death. Death is the long-term consequence of making that decision to take that shortcut, to give in to the here and now. And think about this. Jesus was destined to become king, right? It was God's plan to have him go through what he did, to suffer and sacrifice his life for us, to make payment for our sins, to rise from the dead. That's why he came. And through his obedience, God would elevate Jesus to the highest place. What Satan offers here is a shortcut. Be king now, be elevated now. Have it all now. But really, how does this play out? If Jesus takes that offer, what would happen? Jesus would be king of, of a broken, right, sinful world. Mankind would not be redeemed. And Jesus would, be, would have worshipped God's rival, God the Father's rival. All would be lost. And Jesus knows what's at stake. That's why he says those words so very strongly, away from me. It's exactly what Jesus said, almost exactly what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, when Peter tried to get him to reconsider his mission, to reconsider going through with his death on the cross, take a shortcut. What did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He said to Peter, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Satan would not divert Jesus from his mission Jesus quoted scripture, again from Deuteronomy, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. That was the problem of the Israelites in the wilderness. They would turn from worshiping God to feed on other things. When we, when we started this morning, we talked about having a game plan. What is our game plan? How can we have victory over temptation when it comes? What, what, is, what is your game plan now? Because you've been using one up to this point when it comes to temptation. Is it to will yourself to, to fight temptation, to muster up some kind of in-the-moment discipline, strength, maybe get lucky? Is it to avoid temptation, just get away from anything that can tempt you? Or maybe, maybe you're in this place where you've, you've accepted kind of a defeat, a compromise, I can't win, and you're doing your best to minimize the damage and kind of control the temptation and where it leads, the sin. And, and here's the takeaway from today, a game plan. A game plan is just vital when it comes to this. This is our enemy here who's looking to devour us. A game plan is vital. So let's talk about just three very quick things the Bible talks about in terms of fighting the enemy. First, we need to walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk 
by the Spirit. Think about this. The same Spirit that was with Jesus in the wilderness is is with you now. The Spirit, the Bible says, reminds us of, of what Jesus said. It guides us into truth. It helps us in our weakness. Jesus walked with the Spirit, found victory. A second thing to put in our, in our game plan, learn and know the Word of God. And we just saw it played out by our Savior here in these temptations. Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Know the Word of God. It is a powerful weapon. And third, simply, simply, <laughs> resist the devil. James 4 says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's what Jesus did here. Away from me, Satan. Doesn't mean Satan's not going to come back, because we know he will. But when you're facing that temptation, resist the devil. Now, by all means, put these into your game plan. These these are good things to have. But you're going to need something more. And this is the kind of the overlying principle and what we have tried to address through this whole series as we've talked about temptation. I can't, I can't put into words what it means that our whole lives belong to Him, that we are surrendered, that He is our food, that His mission and His purposes are what His followers are supposed to be feasting on. It's our lifeblood, and that He's greater than, than any appetite that can be offered and that we're supposed to live with eternity in our hearts, not in the temporal, not in the moment. I can't put that into a detailed game plan because none of these points up here are going to really make a difference without our lives being rooted and grounded in Him and His mission and His purposes. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, your soul, your strength. It's about about our hearts. We can have victory over temptation when we walk with the one who had victory over temptation and over sin and over death. Let me say that again. We can have victory over temptation when we walk with the one who had victory over temptation and over sin and over death. And you say, but Dan, that was Jesus. Come on. I'm not Jesus. But Jesus is in you now. That's the promise of everyone who's given their life to Christ. The one who had victory over temptation is in you now. I want to close today just by looking at at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, it's a passage here that refers back to Israel's testing in the wilderness and their continual problem of giving into temptation and then God disciplining them, and then giving into temptation and God disciplining them. And Paul wrote, starting in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, he wrote about the warnings that we get from Israel's history. This is what Paul says, These things happened to them, to the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except 
what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so that you can endure it. If you, if you follow Jesus as Lord today and you're in a place of, of giving in to temptation and it's happening again and again, you've got to get help. You've got to get a teammate, a group of people that can help you step away and take a fast and get recentered to make him your primary food. I mean, the good news is that God forgives and God restores. If you know Jesus today and you follow him and you're facing a temptation, stand firm in that. Be prepared. God's with you in that. He will provide a way out. Sometimes it's hard to see that way out because our eyes are not fixed on him. We're not rooted in him. And if you're a follower of Christ and you think you are in a place where you're not being tempted. A caution here, because I think this is one of the more dangerous places to be. Because it's not a question of if you are being tempted, it's how. How are you being tempted? And a life that is set on cruise control, it requires some deep, deep introspection. Because temptation comes in all kinds of packages, but often it presents itself in the small and in the subtle. So asking questions like, has anything over time crept into my life and perhaps become so regular that I no longer even view it as a temptation? But in reality, it pulls me away from God, away from his heart, away from his mission. There's a quote I read, and, and I don't know where it came from. So if you, you know, let me know. But this quote has had an impact on me. And it says this, God has a plan for your life. The enemy has a plan for your life. Be ready for both. Just be wise enough to know which one to battle and which one to embrace. If you don't know Jesus today. Let me tell you what Jesus' victory means for you. Jesus passed the test. He was perfect in every way. And in being perfect, he was able to make the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He was able to make payment on the cross because of his victory. And his victory means that when we stumble, when we fail, when we give in, he forgives. But we've got to make that decision to believe, to believe on what he did on the cross to save us, and then to decide to follow him as Lord. You can do that today by saying, God, I just want to be right. I want to be right with you. I know my sin stands between you and me. I believe in what Jesus did to make payment for my sin, to make me right with you. Come into my life and be the center of it. And he'll do that do that. Let's pray.